Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Amen. You can have a seat. It's good to see everyone. Thank you for being here this Sunday morning. You know, I just want to start this week by just thanking everyone last week who, who heeded our, our practical application of, of allowing elders to pray for you, uh, allowing others to pray with you, and to see if God might not want you to be suffering through whatever you are suffering with in the moment. It's very encouraging to me. I know it's encouraging to others. And I just want to encourage you that if you ever need prayer, that's one of the things we get to do with each other because we're gathering because we're with one another. It's a prime time to, to, to get with others and pray. We have a prayer room if you ever want to do that. And we have volunteers who would love to pray with you, to, to seek God with you and on your behalf. So even today, I want to encourage you, if that would be a blessing to you, to feel free to utilize some of the time this morning for that. It's one of our real practical ways that, that we don't always have to do it with elders, that if we do what James says here, which is, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed Find that that might be a regular rhythm in your life of praying for God's hand at work in your life. You know, this week, this week is the second of two concluding thoughts that James gives us here at the very end of his letter. And we all have this experience where conclusions feel like it can kind of make or break things, right? Whether it's a, a, a movie trilogy that you've been waiting for, or I don't know, 12 or 15 Marvel movies you were waiting for to see how that was going to end. Right, we can get to the conclusion, and it, it can make people feel excited about how it ended or let down. And the same thing happens in books. In fact, I love how books and a good writer can use their words to draw you back and summarize the beauty of what they've done throughout the entire story. So for instance, here's some of my favorite endings. And fair warning, if you are reading through the Chronicles of Narnia or your children are, I'm about to ruin the ending here in just a minute. So plug your ears. Okay. First, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I ever have done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. From A Tale in Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Or, it is not often that someone comes along who is a true friend and a good writer. Charlotte was both. From Charlotte's Web. I read that to third graders when I was a teacher. But wherever they go and whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place on the top of the forest, a little boy and his bear will always be playing. From the original Winnie the Pooh. Right, or this one from the last of the Chronicles of Narnia. You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be, said Aslan. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at least... They were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. 
or as our, as our scripture ends, Kelsey, <clears throat> he who testifies uh, to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. All right, so we, we come to this section of James this morning, and here's what James says. He says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Your first thought might not be to put this amongst the literary elites in an amazing ending. You know, throughout James, we've seen how he does this really differently than we would expect. I mean, last week we had the prayer section of the end of his letter, and he uses that moment to encourage us to pray that the Lord uh, might have something different than suffering for us. And in fact, we've seen that throughout this, his writings of this letter. This section of all sections makes many scholars wonder, is James like re- recycling a sermon that he's given before? Because this isn't a normal letter ending. Is he trying to be almost sermonic for those he's writing to? And you might be sitting there going, oh, that could maybe make sense. I mean, James, he's been coming to topics and going around and around in circles and kind of doing it again and again. I've been in sermons like that maybe once or twice in my life. Maybe here. We have noticed before, though, that James, James is, he's been commanding people, commanding people a lot, right? James uses commands in his letter more than any other New Testament letter. You know, and here he takes this kind of proverbial platitude, kind of a lofty saying at the very end here to refocus us, to refocus us back on, I think, his heart, and in fact, the greatest ending. That's why I think James has such a wonderful ending. You see, we could stop and probably just take this and take it as like one more data point in the process of James as, as how it can help us and grow us. But I think if we stop and examine and think about what he's saying here, what's, what's behind all of this comment for him, we can see that James has a bigger concern that we would see the greatest ending that we all possibly can have. You know, James starts here. He says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. And he starts with this this beautiful and loving entreaty that he has all the time. My brothers and sisters, he's back there inviting us in to listen to him. But this time he's not telling us to do something for ourselves. He's asking us to do something for others, right? To look in this case, to bring someone back. And we're told here that someone has wandered from the truth. And when we think about wandering, we, we oftentimes probably think about a young child with their mom at, at, the, at the playground, right? Mom's talking to a friend or doing something, and the kid starts to just slowly kind of head off this way towards the teeter-totter, right? Or we talk, think any more about someone looking at their phone, walking down the street, right? And not noticing that they're slowly veering into the pond on their left-hand side. When Scripture talks about wandering, though, that's not usually how Scripture talks about it. It's not so gentle of an idea. Here's how Scripture says it. It says, see that no one leads you astray or to wander. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray or cause them to have wandered. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving or wandering, and being deceived, being wandered, like this idea of pulling people away. And then Peter says this about the unrighteous. He says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, they have wandered. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. As we can see, that idea in Scripture of wandering is not a small thing. I mean, it's connected with those who claim to be Christ and not Christ, those who who want to follow people like Balaam. 
And yet before we just assume that he's talking about unbelievers here, notice what he says at the beginning. He said, anyone among you. He's thinking seemingly, at the very least, someone who's identified as being a part of the gathering, this group, and most likely he is talking about Christians and people who are, who are wandering in their understanding of who the Lord is. And what he says particularly is that they're wandering from the truth. I mean, there's not one particular thing in James's mind. He's using truth here as an overarching image of how it looks to live our life to God. Uh, We see this in other places in Scripture. Paul says it this way. Paul says, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Or John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In both of those passages, use truth the same way, this large-scale overarching idea that we are walking and living life in the ways that God has called us to live and walk. And notice, both of those two also use action words, right? For Paul, it's this idea that to run well is to live in the truth of who God is and what he's called us to do. And the same thing for James, that to fellowship with God is to live in truth, not in darkness or not fellowshipping rightly with us, with, with God. You know, James's concern is that one of us, that someone from amongst the believers, is not walking in the overall truth of who and what God has called them to live in. And not just in a subtle way, but beginning to become a marked departure from what God would have for them. That's why James has been writing. That's the concern that James has in bringing these very practical things before these Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, is he wants them to be thinking about how they might be wandering away from the truth. Again, maybe the beginning subtly, but eventually not so subtle, right? He wants them to be rooted in what God intends for them. And it's almost like here at his very ending, he's wanting us to remember again all the ways that that might look, all the things that he said. It's like pastoral gold. It's like he's begging me to give you a a, a rerun of all the things that we did through James. It's like, sure, James, that's what we want to do at the very end. We want to be reminded of what we just went through, how God has spoken to us through James, So I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible app, pull it up and walk through James with me as we go along. Open up your paper Bible if you actually bring one of those with you. Because we started this journey back in James 1, 1 through 4, and being reminded that God is still working in me and you, right? James, in writing to his Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, wants them to know God's ultimate plan, that God is working to make us perfect and complete in Jesus Christ. Right? Like, like Paul says in Romans 8.29, God has predestined us, his sons and daughters, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But we're also introduced here to the first problem that we all experience, this idea that we're going to face trials and difficulties and suffering. And yet we're told that our trials test our faith, which produces steadfastness, which has the end goal of finding us perfect and complete in Jesus. We moved on to James 1.5-12, through 12, and we saw that trials are just an opportunity for us to seek godly wisdom. And James tells us that God wants to give us wisdom specifically in our trials. And he reminds us, he even promises us that God gives generously, singularly, in accordance with his very good and loving will for us, that God only wants to give you and me exactly what we need to grow in our walk with him. And we need to remind ourselves that the question is not, how do I get out of the trial, but rather, what do I get out of the trial? In James 1, 13 through 18, our trials are not temptations from God. God does not tempt us. God does allow trials and temptation, but the sin, that comes from us. It comes from our desires that are luring and eventually giving birth to sin in us. And as we 
said throughout that whole beginning section, remind ourselves that, that trials test and refine our faith. The strength in faith produces the steadfastness that we need to walk out this life and by God's grace finally be transformed to be perfect and complete like Christ. And then as we moved out of that section, uh, we saw this first section of, of, God, of how we should be obedient to God's word. Brian Rome did a great job of kicking us off on James 1, 19 through 20 and reminding us that God's righteousness is never brought about by anger. And that for James, choosing to, be, to not be angry goes hand in hand with being quick to hear and slow to speak. And that those two verses really are an introduction to so much of what James has said, where he comes back again and again to our tongue, to our heart, how we engage one another and care for each other. And then Jack Morgan walked us through James 1, 21 through 27, reminded us that to be a doer of the word happens as, as we are those who, who care for the widows and the orphans, those who remain unstained by the world and those who bridle our tongue. Again, back to the tongue. We are the beloved sons and daughters of God, ambassadors of the most high king to a watching world, emissaries of his love and grace to a world that needs to be rightly brought back to him. Jack gave us a great picture of himself with all of his clothes on as a reminder that we're to take everything off, all the sin in our lives, and to put on the word of God in our hearts, to know Jesus and walk with him daily. And then in James 2, 1 through 13, we're encouraged not to show preferences in sinful ways, not to preference the rich over the poor. And yet, as James is going along and as we're about to maybe start to feel the weight of trying to do everything to earn our salvation, as it were, James reminds us that so speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Right? It's our, our merciful attitude in remembering how God has shown us mercy that will count as evidence of the presence of Christ with us. And as we quoted and reminded ourselves, you can tell who has received mercy from God by the way they show mercy to others. And then we get to James 2, 14 through 26, sort of the, the quintessential passage of James that faith without works is dead. And James wants to argue here that our, our faith has to have an outworking. It's not something that's just belief. And he shows us that there are people throughout scripture and how their lives are always living out their faith in tangible ways. We remembered there that we need to be like, sometimes like the old cowboy westerns, like the sheriff who needs their head dunked in the trough, brought back up and reminded, are you living out who you were called to be? And then at other times, we're more like the hero who walks in, thinks that by doing all the good things that we've proven how great we are and we need to be reminded, do you walk in the right relationship with the right person? Are you a beloved son and daughter of God? James continues to push into us that this is mostly about an identity issue in our life. And then in James 3, 1 through 12, James turns from that idea about being obedient to how do we pursue peace with one another. His first example is that we need to tame our tongues. Now, we often underestimate the power of our tongue. We forget that it is small but dangerous, like a horse, a ship, or a fire. And like a fire, it can be dangerous and even deadly. Outside of God, we can't tame it. It's often duplicitous, not like our singular God. This is not what it would look like to be perfect and complete in Christ Jesus, to act that way. Take a breath, that's halfway. Okay, keep going. James 3, 13 through 4, 3. Talks about practical application and quarreling, how it abounds, and that our disunity is when we have non-theological, non-moral disagreements, which happens so often. Quarrels are because of our selfish desires ruling us, desires of selfish ambition and jealousy, 
We often don't have what we need in quarrels because we don't ask God for the wisdom that he wants to give us. Instead, we seek earthly wisdom, even demonic wisdom. Selfishness and jealousy are not true wisdom. It's false wisdom that produces works of disorder in every evil practice. True wisdom is from God, and it's pure and found in humility. It produces works that are peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And here we're to ask, not am I right, but how can I act rightly even in my quarrels? Brent Angelus was lucky enough to get back in the saddle and to remind us that we are adulterous people so often. And even in that hard comment, it can be an encouragement of a reminder of the beautiful relationship that means we must have with God. We are his beloved ones. He has bought us at great cost through the cross in his very son's life. God came after us and he still comes after us even today in our sin. He calls us back into his beautiful relationship where we call him this very intimate phrase of a beloved husband and not the distant phrase of my master. He loves us. He cares for us. He woos us into relationship through his spirit. In James 4, 11 through 12, we saw things about slandering and evil words where James's primary concern is not just speaking unkind words to one another in general, but how we can label someone, judge them even down to their very core, to put a stamp on them about their ultimate value. And we're reminded that it's okay to, to acknowledge that we have disagreements. It's even okay to move on from one another in those disagreements, but that it's imperative to have grace in our disagreements. Slander and judgment ultimately are our attempt to assert God in his role as judge and to judge others in his place. James 4, 13 through 17 made me think of the, the phrase, man plans, but God laughs. It's the beginning of, of a section on godly perspective and how God's perspective is so different than how we oftentimes think. You know, James reminds us here in 4, 13 through 17 of whether, it, whether it's the when, the where, the how, the why, or the goal, that God is ultimately in charge. That we should be the ones that can say, if it is God's will, then we will do this or that. And he reminds us that we're just a vapor. We're a mist. And if our heart is to see the Lord work in our lives, that we want to see God do whatever he would see as best, whether it's for me, my failed plans and thoughts of business and work after my marriage and honeymoon, or for Brendan Jen Angelo stepping down from full-time ministry, we all want to submit to God and be able to be found in his will. And then James 5, 1 through 6 starts with money and gold, fine clothing and how it's all temporary. It will all go away. And yet more damning, more condemning to us is when we pile up our riches and they rot in these the last days. And James is trying to remind us that this is the last days, that we are in the days of the Great Commission, this moment where we are to take the gospel throughout the entire world. And he asks us to do that with all the means that we have. We don't want to have said to us, you've laid up treasure in the last days. And that's a real concern for me and you, those who are relatively rich compared to most this world. God has asked us to share the gospel and use all that we have for that sake, whether it's in our home, in our cities, in our workplace, and across the globe. And again, in James 5, 7 through 11, Brent did a great job in reminding us that James is called to have patience and the right attitude. But it's not just any patience. Rather, it was, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We stand in this moment realizing how close the end times is. It's not a time to hold grudges against one another, but trust the Lord who is coming to judge in mercy. In James 5.12, we are told that above all, above all, we are to make our yes our yes and our no our no. And James makes this an identity statement where yes and no 
are as much about our identity as they're about making oaths and breaking them. If we're true to our identity, we shouldn't need to make an oath at all. A simple yes or no would be true and consistent to who we are as much as it is to who the Lord is and how he's promised to love us by his Holy Spirit. The question was, can you, can I, by God's grace, say yes to this beautiful call in our life and his gracious identity for us? And can we say no to brokenness and sin by the same grace and mercy? And just this last week, we talked about how through, through prayer, James is saying that God doesn't always want us to have to be in suffering, that we should ask, we should pray, we should invite others in, particularly elders, that we believe that miracles can happen, that we believe that God surely one day will come again and his kingdom will break through in all the miraculous and glorious ways you could ever imagine, changing our very existence in an instant. And we can pray that he might give us glimpses of that today that it might happen in small ways through, through personal healing, spiritual or even physical. We believe that we should confess our sins and that we might make sure that our suffering is not a brokenness connected to unrepentant sin in our life. And we see throughout that whole movement things like trial and temptations, angers and slow speech, loose tongues, quarrels, and overall James's encouragement is again and again to come back to our identity of who we are in Christ Jesus that we are beloved sons and daughters, that God has drawn us to himself at great cost. You'll find our real identity there, a desire to see God make us perfect and complete in all ways, whether it's through our words to one another, our loving actions or our submission to God, our faith, that our faith would have tangible outworkings in our day-to-day life as we pray that God makes us consistent with his singular and good ways. That's what James is thinking about when he says that we might wander, that we might no longer be walking in that reality of our identity. And he has a fear. He has a worry. It's this. Let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. As James is thinking about this wandering, he sees it in the biggest possible picture at first, this idea that everyone is wandering. All are going away, and it's a very real problem that we're headed for death. Not a metaphorical death, a very real, physical, and spiritual death. You know, it's clear from this context, and we said you'll save his soul, that we're, we're helping to save this other person who's wandered in those ways. In this sense, he's thinking about wandering, not just as a child going over to the teeter-totter, but as one stepping in front of a UPS truck that needs to be pulled back, right? Or the person where this has really happened, looking at their phone and steps off the edge of the Grand Canyon. He's saying it's that big of a deal, but it also can happen in a smaller sense. And it's the second phrase that we should kind of look at and wonder. He says that it will cover a multitude of sins. It's this weird kind of proverbial platitude at the very end here. And it's grammatically not really connected well to the rest of the sentence. Maybe it was something that they said to each other all the time, that it will cover over many sins. We have some places where Proverbs 10 says something like that. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. But James seems to be thinking about something bigger now. This idea that, of course, the person who's, who's being saved and pulled back, of course, their hope is that their sins will be covered. And it might sound strange to our ears, but could it also be that this is part of the process for us as well? Right? The part of it would be that our sins would be covered in engaging this message, in engaging this reality. And look what Scripture says here, Ezekiel 3.21. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he will surely live. 
because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will, both, you will save both yourself and your hearer. Or Jesus, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, Scripture, God links this idea of the message that we carry, the identity that we understand with how we think about our own sins being dealt with. There's a connection here. And I think this is why James's ending is so beautiful. He's pointing us to a much larger reality than just these to-dos and to-don'ts throughout this book. He's pointing us back to this heart that he said previously, where he said back in James 2, 12 through 13, Kelsey, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Or as he's saying it here, you will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The ending that we all have found, the joy that we have in knowing Jesus is the reality that our sins will be covered up. We come back to this identity not to earn something again, but to know that we are truly found in Jesus as beloved sons and daughters. See, the problem that we can all have when we come to James and read something like this is kind of one or two ways, at least I see it in myself. The first one is to say, that's right, I will work harder to do that. Therefore, I can earn what is needed in my life. Or maybe you find yourself doing this maybe once or twice during this season. Oh, so-and-so needs to read that passage. They should see how they're missing out on that. Then they would see how they've harmed me and hurt me. Then they would come back and give me all sorts of you know, repentance and I could maybe then forgive them, we could move forward. In both of those ways, we are all trying to say something like this. God, there we go. Let justice be done, I am owed. That's what you're trying to say. Either let justice be done, I've earned it, I'm owed now what you need to give me, God, or let justice be done. You've now seen how you've messed up. I'm owed now repentance. I'm now owed something from you. The sad thing is, if that's our heart, this is likely what we'll hear at the great throne of judgment. Let justice be done. I am owed. That is not the ending any of us want to hear. That is not the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. James doesn't want us to accidentally walk through this entire letter and come away with that message. He brings us back again and says, if you see people wandering like you were once wandering, bring them back. Bring them back into the identity that they have in Jesus Christ as a beloved son and daughter, not to be bound by the law of doing, of works, but rather a law of liberty a law of freedom found in the love of Jesus Christ, a love that now says to you, your sins are covered. They are taken away. It's the most beautiful relationship. It's the most beautiful hope, the most beautiful ending that all of us can have that we would never hear, let justice be done, I am owed, but rather let mercy be served, your sins are covered. You are forgiven. Come, enjoy the love of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we desire so much. We want to live this heart, to so speak, to so act as those who are to be 
to be judged under the law of liberty. We want to say that for judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We pursue those who are wandering, whether it's in the greatest possible way as wandering away from their God into an eternity of hell or as those who are beginning to walk away slowly from the beauty and the joy of walking daily as a beloved son and daughter, knowing that God's love is not to be earned, but rather simply enjoyed and walked out daily. That is the ending that we pray for ourselves, and that's the ending that James is pointing us towards. It's what we want for our friends and family. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that that is the truth. Lord God, that in Jesus Christ, we can find that our sins are covered, that we've been pulled back and saved from death. Lord God, that, that, that letters like James, letters like Paul wrote, letters like John, even what Jesus said, the heart behind it all was that we would come and know that we are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his resurrection in power. We now are your sons and daughters. Lord God, thank you that that is sure for us, that we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to work to make that happen. And Lord God, would that be the message that we carry? That when we talk about what it looks like to be a son or daughter of God, when we talk about missing the mark, it's not to try to encourage someone to try harder or do more, but to come back and rest in the work that you've done, to rest in the reality of who we are in you, in Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen. As we come to communion together, uh, I would just invite you to, to pray for one of two things. Uh, maybe you're coming for the first time and you need to put your hope in that. Maybe you're wandering. You do not yet know Jesus Christ. Come and find in him the one who calls you beloved, who calls you my son or daughter. But for the rest of us, you might be coming today in one of two places. You might be coming and be thinking about how, how you are wandering Come before the Lord and admit that to him, where you might not be accepting who you are as a beloved son and daughter, the lies that you've believed. Trust him with your life in that way. And maybe you're thinking about someone else you know who's wandering. Pray for them this morning. Pray how God might want you to pursue them. Would he want you to, to be used to pull them out of front of that truck, as it were, out of that canyon, to be a part of his process of saving a soul and covering for them a multitude of sins. So we'll, we'll hold the elements. We'll take them together at the end of the song. Just invite you to do that with me. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.